You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP. My name is Christina and today I am joined by Professor Kres Eastman from the Australian Thyroid Foundation to discuss hypothyroidism in pregnancy. Kres, welcome to the podcast. I'm really grateful to have you here today. Hello, Christina. Lovely to be with you. So I'm going to start off with asking about thyroid physiology. Just let's go back to basics and talk about that physiology, how pregnancy affects the thyroid. Well, Christina, I think it's a fascinating physiological time because this is the thyroid stress test. Because what what actually happens in pregnancy is that the pregnancy hormone, uh, human chorionic gonadotrophin, HCG, that's what we'll call it, takes over the thyroid for the first half of pregnancy. So it comes in and HCG looks like and acts like TSH, the thyroid stimulating hormone. I won't try to go into structures, but they're both glycoproteins. They look alike in their structure. And the HCG can interact and stimulate the receptor on the thyroid cell to make the thyroid take up iodine and produce thyroid hormone. So for the first 20 weeks of pregnancy, HCG takes over and causes the thyroid to make more thyroid hormone which in turn through that normal feedback system, it uh, takes over and, and turns off the TSH. So we know that TSH levels in pregnancy uh, early on go down and rise later on because the HCG is running the show. The other thing that happens is that there is increased thyroxine production, as I said, from the stimulation, but also the HCG causes estrogen production which stimulates the thyroid binding globulin, the transport protein that comes from the liver. So the whole pool of thyroxine in the body in in the pregnant woman increases quite dramatically. So the woman needs a lot more iodine. And this is why um, extra iodine pregnancy is so vitally important because your needs for iodine increase around about 50% or thereabouts uh, just to make that extra bit of thyroxine. So if there is anything wrong with your thyroid, it, it might be functioning reasonably well in the non-pregnant state, there are no problems at all, then suddenly submitted to the stress test of pregnancy, that's when things can go wrong. Now, the woman may get through it, but she may not. And if she doesn't, there are the consequences, which we'll go into in a moment, are both obstetrical and also for the fetus. I mean, the fetus may not survive, but if the fetus does survive, It may have damage, particularly neurological damage, because the thyroid hormone is vitally important for development of the brain and also it's it's important for continuing development of the brain after the baby's born. So, you know, the end point is either death to the fetus, which is the worst thing that can happen, or some form of neurological impairment. It's a whole new field of physiology that takes over and, and works for this time during pregnancy, which is really quite different to what's happening in the human body outside pregnancy. And so you've touched on there a few of the complications from hypothyroidism in pregnancy. What do you see as the importance, I guess, of identifying hypothyroidism? And is there a difference between, in terms of what the research tell us about the impact of overt hypothyroidism versus, you know, subclinical hypothyroidism and its effects um, on the pregnancy or the the fetus. Okay, let's just deal with overt hypothyroidism for a start because there's no dispute, there's no controversy as far as that's concerned. Women who are, you know, quite severely hypothyroid are unlikely to get pregnant. They're not uh, ovulating, they're not usually not menstruating, so they usually, uh, they tend to be infertile. 
but they may get pregnant. A woman may get pregnant. Now, if she does, then it's likely she can have quite serious obstetrical type complications. I mean, it starts with premature loss of the baby, so miscarriage early on. Uh, there are multiple other complications during pregnancy, and you end up with a small for gestational age baby and a baby that has quite significant neurological impairment, you know, as noted most of all by much lower IQ. So we all understand that's severe or overt hypothyroidism. We all understand it should be prevented. And I think we all understand if identified or should be identified as early as possible in pregnancy and should be treated vigorously. On the other hand, subclinical hypothyroidism, which is a biochemical diagnosis. So subclinical because there are no obvious clinical symptoms or signs. And it is purely and simply a biochemical diagnosis based upon an elevated increase in the TSH level in pregnancy with a normal T4 total and free T4 levels. The big question, of course, is, well, what's a normal TSH level in pregnancy? And this is where we can't get agreement. I mean, there are multiple different expert groups around the world that sit down and argue this all the time, and we find it very hard to get overall consensus on it. So it's a biochemical diagnosis. And what we do know from multiple observational studies that women with subclinical hypothyroidism will suffer or possibly can suffer multiple side effects. These obstetrical ones I've already mentioned, early uh, miscarriage, placental abruption, small for gestational age baby, multiple other adverse consequences during the pregnancy. And while we think that that child may lose some IQ, the data is not so sound as far as that's concerned. So that's what we're dealing with. And dealing with a, a biochemical diagnosis that we can't all agree upon, you know, what are the cutoff points and how we make that diagnosis. We can't all agree yet upon the how common or how prevalent, if you like, the adverse effects of the subclinical hypothyroidism. So, you know, it's a fairly fuzzy area that has uh, multiple different groups having multiple different opinions on. Yeah, you're right. It is grey and it can be confusing for us as clinicians. Sure. Confusing for our patients. I mean, I've even had a couple of patients who, you know, in one pregnancy with pretty much very similar TSH levels in one pregnancy qualified for needing thyroid replacement and then in another not because the guidelines have changed in between pregnancies. So it's an, it's an evolving space as the research comes out. All the more reason to continue to update and hear about the latest research and evidence. So let's talk about screening then, because this I find is something else that kind of goes through waves I and mean, there can be a little bit of difference of opinion, I guess, about in terms of should we be screening women? Should we be screening all women, a subset of women through and what should we be screening with them with? Let me first of all declare a conflict of interest here or potential conflict of interest here because there are multiple groups here and I'm going to be quoting them. The, there's the American Endocrine Society who came out with its specific guidelines, very comprehensive publication, 2012. The American Thyroid Association that's had two different uh, lots of guidelines, the most recent 2017 and the first one about 2011, I think. The European Thyroid Association and then we have on the other side of the table the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists who take a very different view on this and the Royal Australian uh, New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and they take a very similar view to ACOG. So you've got you like endocrinologists, healthcare physicians on one side of the table having a view and on the other side you've got the obstetricians having a view. My point often about this is, well, 
it's vitally important what the primary health care physician does, in other words, GPs in Australia, and endocrinologists, because the obstetricians don't often see or don't usually see the patient until she is 8, 10, 12 weeks pregnant. Now, the brain development is well underway by then, so diagnosis and decisions should have been made very early on, you know, before that patient gets to see the, see the obstetrician and gynaecologist. And I'll bring this out a bit more in a moment in terms of the reasons why the obstetricians take a slightly different point of view based upon a couple of clinical trials that uh, have had a negative effect and they use that as their evidence. And unfortunately, those trials, as I'll mention, are flawed because they started in the second trimester, not in the first. So, you know, this is a critical time for brain development. You've got to get onto this very early on. In other words, as soon as you've got a positive pregnancy test, if you've got a problem, you've got to get on and work on it. Now, how do you screen? Well, first of all, let's say you make the diagnosis. And the diagnosis is made upon a serum TSH level. Question is, well, what is the cutoff point? Well, here it gets very murky and very difficult. Different platforms, when I say different platforms or analytical systems, whether you use your pathology services, uses a Roche or uses an Abbott platform or some other platform, they all come up with slightly different results. So one message to our listeners here is today is stick to the same provider. Don't change, don't send the lady to provider A on one occasion and for a repeat to provider B because you're, you're going to get a different result because it depends on what system they're using. And this has only recently emerged that it's not a good idea to sort of mix it because they don't match. That, that's the first thing. The second thing is make certain your provider has a pregnancy reference range. Now, most providers in Australia, and most of them have moved to provide a pregnancy reference range, which is different and much tighter, much tighter than the adult reference range. For example, adult reference ranges give an upper limit of TSH in, in adults. That's in young and middle-aged adults, up to around 4 milliunits per litre TSH. That's the upper limit. Now, in pregnancy, that reference range or that upper limit is much, much lower than that. I tried to explain this early on. Remember, HCG has taken over the lady's thyroid. It's, it's running the show. More thyroxines being produced. That in turn goes to the pituitary and turns off the TSH. So the TSH plummets. It drops very low in the first trimester. So you've got to be using a pregnancy reference range. So again, for any physician, GP, whatever, working in this field, obstetrician, uh, when you're testing a, a woman who's pregnant and doing screening or diagnostic testing and measuring the TSH, make certain the provider is using a reference range. Now, what's the upper limit? Well, the American Endocrine Society, now my conflict of interest is that I happen to be a member of the guidelines, expert guidelines committee for the American Endocrine Society. They had this value that the upper limit of normal in pregnancy is 2.5 versus 4 in the non-pregnant state. That has been seen by many different groups and many much research to be probably a bit too tight. The American Thyroid Association have come out with their most recent reference range and they say, look, if you have your own pregnancy reference range, so pathology company, whatever it is, produces a reference range that says it's a valid pregnancy reference range, stick to that. But if they don't, then your upper limit of normal should be four. So that's what they're saying. That, that's the default sort of position. So for, for the clinician out there 
uh, you should check these factors, the, these questions that I've just uh, put to you. And the second thing is that you, uh, if you don't have a pregnancy reference range, then use four. But my position is that I think 2.5 is more likely to be correct than four. And I stand by that. Now, not everybody in Australia will agree with that. And there's uh, people in Melbourne that are strongly disagreeing with that. Elsewhere in the country, I think they tend to favour the 2.5, but Melbourne tend to favour the 4. So we've got a problem between 2.5 and 4, and I will help in a few minutes' time to try and navigate our way through that, that little area. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, if you do a TSH level and it's above 2.5 and certainly above 4, then you must immediately repeat it, but with the same provider. Don't go elsewhere. And you must or should do thyroid autoantibodies. Because if that lady has positive thyroid autoantibodies, particularly TPO, thyroid peroxidase antibody, then she has underlying autoimmune thyroid disease. So she does have a thyroid problem. She's got an elevated or mildly elevated TSH. I think you are committed to action regardless of whatever argument is put to you. You are committed to action. And in my view, as a physician, as a doctor, I think you'd be foolish not to take that seriously to the extent of saying, well, I'm going to offer treatment to this woman. I mean, why would you not offer treatment? The obstetricians would answer that questions by saying, well, we probably wouldn't offer treatment because the two randomised controlled trials that have been done offering thyroxine to women like this didn't show any significant benefit. And you go, oh, that's disappointing. That was unexpected. But if you look closely at those trials, you'll find that the mean median time during pregnancy that these trials would conduct, the median time, gestation time, I should say, was around about 14 to 16 weeks. Well, you're into the second trimester. So these trials, have, well, the numbers are large and they don't show any really significant changes in terms of benefit for thyroxine therapy. They started too late. They've missed those early changes. So I, I think we can't ignore all the observational studies showing there are adverse consequences. We know that the woman is deficient in thyroxine. I think we believe our physiology. And if you've got a, clearly you've got a positive thyroid autoantibodies and the TSH level is elevated above the pregnancy reference range, then in my view as a doctor, why wouldn't you treat with thyroxine in a low dose because we know from studies in our own work, Dr. Norman Blumenthal and I from, ended up treating 100 women out of 1,000 we had in our series with no adverse effects and, and quite significant benefit. But I think you'd need to talk through the situation with the woman and say, look, we know there are a lot of consequences of this problem. We know that thyroxine should fix it if we give the right sort of dose. We know that low-dose thyroxine is safe. We're not going to over-treat you. We know it's safe. There's enough work. And we believe that it would be the right thing to do to treat you. But if you don't want to have it, you don't have to. I, I think you need to explain that. Now, a lot of women wouldn't want that explanation. They just say, Doc, should I have it or shouldn't I have it? And, and I think you have to make up your mind. And in my view, that should be treated. On the other side, the downside is, are you over-treating? Well, we may well be over-treating. A, a significant number of women, we, we may well be doing that. But if we are, we know that, that that treatment is safe if we're using thyroxine. We're not using desiccated or a combination therapy. We're not using T3. We shouldn't be using any of those things. 
we're using low-dose thyroxine. We know that potentially it's going to give benefit. We know that it doesn't do any harm. Then I think as medical practitioners, that's what we should be doing. So that, that's, that's Chris Eastman's argument. Uh, others will put forward and say, look, that's over-testing, that's over-treating, and, and that's their argument. Whereas my argument is that, quite simply, is that, no, we're not over-testing, and uh, I don't think we're over-treating. But we don't know. I, you know, the research will eventually enough, enough large-scale trials going on to ultimately answer that question. Absolutely, yes. Um, so let's talk about treatment then. And I want to talk through, I guess, break this up into two sections and talk about pre-existing hypothyroidism and then that new diagnosis that you've picked up in that, early, hopefully in the early pregnancy. Let's start with pre-existing. Let's use I guess an example of a woman who is known to you and has been on thyroid medication and, you know, has been well controlled planning a pregnancy. What happens when they then come in and say, you know, I've got that positive pregnancy test, I'm pregnant. As a GP, we're running through a million things that we have to run through in those initial antenatal consults. What should we be talking to them about when it comes to their thyroid medication though? Before we actually get to that, I think if you have a patient that you're managing their thyroid hormone replacement therapy, they've got hypothyroidism, and most of these women will have Hashimoto's disease. Most of them, it's, it's all thyroid autoimmunity, the vast majority in Australia. That's the underlying problem. And you're writing out their scripts and doing their monitoring. I think the conversation somewhere along the line has got to be now, if you decide or you happen to find yourself pregnant, whichever way you handle that with that individual patient. What that woman needs to know is that you have to immediately increase your thyroxine dosage. Now, you might say to them, look, please call me and we'll talk about it. But if you can't get hold of me, you can't get hold of someone else. And if you don't have a doctor telling you, no, you mustn't, then you should increase your thyroxine dosage by 25%. So you sit down and you work out what's 25% or thereabouts of their daily or weekly dosage and you say okay well you need to increase your dosage by 25 or 50 micrograms per day or per week or whatever so as soon as you find you're pregnant for goodness sake get a test done and start that extra dose of thyroxine and then come back and see me so that the woman knows in advance rather than saying oh you know i'm now 12 weeks pregnant and i didn't increase my dosage because nobody told me to I think they should be armed with that information right at the very beginning. And, you know, we try and do that through the Australian Thyroid Foundation, which is a patient support group, to let women know they're going to take responsibility for it. So if they haven't, you see them, that's what you've got to do. You'll need up to around 50% increase in your thyroxine dose during pregnancy. And that fits with what I was just talking a little bit about before with the HCG taking over your thyroid and making your thyroid make a lot more thyroxine. So the way to manage that is, you know, 25% increase as soon as you're pregnant. And then you check the thyroid function tests, TSH and free T4, and you go mainly on the TSH every four, six weeks, and you, you monitor the TSH level and you increase the dose accordingly up to around 20, 24 weeks, maybe up to even 30 weeks, and then you can, it's usually stable in the last 10 to 12 weeks of pregnancy. But you must increase the dose, you must monitor regularly, and you will get through, you know, 99% of your women will do very well. So it's fairly simple, as long as you know that's what you must do. 
So that's the women who are on thyroxine or known to be pregnant. Now, if you have a woman who's had thyroid disorder or strong family history or she's got a bad history of pregnancy, of miscarriage, or even potential infertility or whatever, she's got positive thyroid autoantibodies, then I think that's the woman again, she's your patient in your practice, then you've got to say to her, look, as soon as you get pregnant, we've got to test your thyroid and we've got to look after it during the pregnancy. Don't have them coming to you at 10 or 12 weeks. It's, it's probably a bit too late. So that covers the women who have uh, hypothyroidism or they are at risk. Now, those that you've picked up by either screening or case detection, I just should say here, Medicare won't reimburse for screening, but they will for case detection. And if you go to these very supposedly expert bodies, most of them will say, look, we don't, and I'm just reading for this, we don't recommend for or against universal screening. That's really helpful, isn't it? It's not saying, we're not saying yes or no. So people take that as, well, we shouldn't do it. You know, it's a cost. Again, my view is quite simple. I, I find, you know, sitting on the fence in medicine where... All you can do is fall off or hurt yourself sitting on the fence. No, it, to my mind, that's not good medicine. And if you look at the recommendations that these that these bodies put out, you know, there's a dozen or so recommendations of risk factors. You know, previous history of thyroid disorders, known antibodies, women over the age of 30, women having already multiple pregnancies, history of pregnancy loss and so on and so forth. I mean, I can't even remember them all. And I sit on some of these supposedly clever bodies that put forward these recommendations, and I, I can't remember them. Yet these clever doctors are all saying, well, this is up to the GP at the first consultation when a woman comes in, she's pregnant, to check through all of these factors and then decide whether to test or not. You know, in reality, that's not going to happen, is it? I mean, not in a busy practice. So my view, quite simply, is that every woman is at risk and therefore every woman needs a check that's done, you know, at the earliest possible time as case detection rather than screening. Now, maybe I'm just playing with words and I've been accused of doing that, but I think, um, you know, if the Medicare man comes knocking on the door and wants to know why you're doing it, well, it's pretty straightforward. Pretty well all of your patients will have one or more risk factors. So I think that's terribly important in terms of picking these women up. Excellent. So, and I guess that really touched on the who part of that screening as well, you know, which we will call case detection. Case detection, <laughs> case not screening. detection yeah. from now on. So then for those women that we have picked up a problem with their thyroid, what are we doing with them in terms of needing to start thyroid okay. medication? And, you know, you've mentioned the importance of yeah. that happening straight away. Yeah, the first principle is treat early, as early as you possibly can. You're really trying to prevent miscarriage and you're trying to prevent damage to the fetal brain. So you've got to start as early as possible. The second thing to remember is that that woman's already producing a lot of thyroid hormone but can't produce enough for pregnancy, can't produce the extra for pregnancy. So you're really giving that extra that her own thyroid can't produce. I mean, some of them are partly damaged, others more severely damaged. So the smartest and, and best way of doing it is to start off with 50 micrograms of thyroxine a day. That's the best thing. Don't go too high. Don't say, oh, well, because she needs thyroxine, we're going to get stuck into this and start off with 150 or 200 a day or something micrograms per day. There is some evidence that 
very high dose thyroxine during pregnancy can do some damage. Not a lot, but some. It's enough to scare people like me to say, don't go there. So the smartest thing is to go 50 micrograms a day and you can test. So within four to six weeks, you check the TSH and free T4 levels and adjust accordingly. Most women will get by at around 50 or at the most 100 micrograms per day, no more than that, because you're supplementing them, which is a bit different to those women that have already got, you know, marked severe overt hypothyroidism that's being treated that you're taking on women we just talked about a little while ago they're on thyroxine before they get pregnant so go low watch what you're doing and monitor exactly the same way now you keep going until the woman has delivered her baby and then you can actually stop the thyroxine but you should monitor that woman now if she's got positive thyroid autoantibodies she is at risk and i can't give you a figure but maybe 10, 20% of these women will develop postpartum thyroiditis. So, you know, your job's not finished. You've got to look after this woman in the postpartum. You can't say, all right, it's all done. What a good job we've all done. Isn't that good? Your baby's fine. We're all very happy. No, you've got to monitor that woman for postpartum thyroiditis. You've stopped the thyroxine. So she must have an underlying problem if you've treated it or you believe she's got an underlying problem. So she is at risk of developing hypothyroidism long term. The thing I think you've got to tell her, if this is baby one or two and she's going to have more children, you've got to say, well, look, you're in that risk category that you're going to need thyroxine during your next pregnancy. So make certain you're aware of that yourself. And we'd like to think we had some means of ensuring that when we see women like this, you know, the whole thing falls into place because... The previous history is there and we've learnt from it by the first or second pregnancy. So I think that's a safe and good way to manage these women. Yeah, excellent. Some really practical tips there. And I like the tips in terms of really empowering the patient to, you know, forming them before they're pregnant that, you know, this is what needs to happen. And afterwards in terms of preparing them for future pregnancies, you know, I think that's really important for, you know, for us as health professionals to be empowering the, the patients themselves to take control of it too. This is probably all we've got time for today, Prof. I'm so grateful to you for coming on and sharing your expertise in this area. I just wanted to ask any particular resources, GPs out there that want to get some more information, especially those that are doing a lot of antenatal and shared care, do you have any resources that they should have a look at? Yeah, they can go to the Australian Thyroid Foundation. It's got a lot of information, a lot of that material is written by me and others. They can go to um, PubMed or they can go to the American Thyroid Association guidelines. The other publication is the Endocrine Society Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. So that will give them the material that they require. Well, thank you, Prof. I'm really appreciative of your time. And as I mentioned before, sharing your expertise on this topic and obviously something that you're extremely uh, passionate about. So thank you. Okay. Thank you, Christina. (laughs) 